Listener Production. Sometimes we miss what I think is obvious. We're so busy looking for what we want, but I think we want it to be so big. We don't want them there, we want them here. We don't want to have to use a medium, we want them directly here. So I think once we come from a perspective of understanding how energy can operate, then we can fine-tune how we allow it to take place. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Just wait until you hear this conversation with world-renowned psychic medium, John Edward. I am a believer, but I struggle with the idea of what happens when we die. Where do we go? What does it mean? But when John left our podcasting studio, I felt lighter, more at peace. And to be honest, I'm still processing all of the information, all of the energy, all of the feelings and tools that he gave me. It really is quite almost a euphoric feeling that I have at the moment, this sort of light bulb moment of trying to make sense of where we are in the world. So why? He helped me meditate and think about the loved ones that have passed. He also gave me some really simple tools for dealing with toxic people. He also helped me think about death because I don't know about you, but I'm not great about talking about death. And he also helped me make sense of how do we explain what happens when we die? And I reckon you are going to find some meaning in this conversation too. I can't wait for you to listen to it and I can't wait to hear from you about what it's brought up for you. And you know what? You can also catch the remarkable John Edward in action. He's going to be returning to Australia in October for his national tour. You are not going to want to miss him. John, I'm (laughs) so excited to see you. Sam, it's a reunion. It is a reunion. It really is a joy. We first met when you came to do Studio 10 Mm -hmm. and I really felt I connected with you. I I probably just talked at you because I was so excited. I think we have a similar sense of humor and we kind of connected over things that might have transpired and the looks from now and again to like, (laughs) like, what was that? And like those type of moments. And so, yes, I felt like you were the person who like helped me feel like I was welcome there. Oh, thank you. You're an empath. You really... Empathetic. I don't, ah, I don't use the word empath, actually. Really? Yeah, one of the things I, I try to... I've been through so many of the, like, the buzzwords in the subject matter. So I've been through the soulmate years. I've been through the twin flame years. I've been through the past life regression years. And right now, with social media, being an empath is the buzzword. And what that means is that you are a highly sensitive person. You're intuitive. You're sensitive. Better way of saying it, because if you're being an empath, it means that you can't feel your own feelings. You're taking on somebody else's. And we Ah. never want to be risotto. That's what I tell people. You don't want to be risotto. You want to be the main dish. So if you make seafood with risotto, that risotto is now seafood risotto. If you make chicken with risotto, that is now chicken risotto. So you want to be the chicken and the fish, never the risotto. So energetically, you want to be sensitive, not an empath. Because if you're in a toxic relationship or in a relationship with somebody who's not positive for you, 
and you are being an empath, then you are now not feeling your feelings, you're feeling theirs. And people can get stuck. This is light bulb moments for me. That is so true. A couple of things to talk about there. First of all, risotto. (laughs) (laughs) Which in my Aussie accent, I go, risotto. (laughs) But that is such an amazing way of thinking about it. Because yes, there is times, I think, for a lot of us where we're open to people, we take all that on. And that isn't healthy. No. And it's usually from the people that we love the most. And this would be where I would introduce the concept of an energy grenade. So an energy grenade is when you are looking at your text messages from someone and they, they maybe text you something that's going to take you off balance. So if you're having a conversation with someone and it's not going in the way that's positive and maybe you're not done yet having that conversation, but they're fuming, they're, they're sitting there and they're just getting angry. So they text you something. When you open up that text and read those words, it's not just the words that you're reading. It's the energy upon which that they're sent. So that is what I refer to as an, as an energy grenade. It's like, boom. And then now you're left to kind of pick up the pieces from that. So I'm all about making sure that people are protecting their energy. And it's very important that people recognize that they actually need to do that. So when we first walked in, you saw I was still wearing my mask and I go everywhere. I'm always trying to mitigate what you possibly can with something that's unseen that you can be harmed by. Energy is the same way. It's unseen and you can be affected by it, specifically with those that are in your circle. How then do we protect ourselves from that? So I think having a, um, a really healthy set of boundaries where you verbalize them to people, where it, it makes you a little bit unpopular in the beginning and people will be like, oh, 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 Jess won't do that. Oh, Jess doesn't like that. But you know what? It's them now reiterating to you the boundaries that you're stating. So I would say to somebody, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. And here's the reason why. And then that's as far as I go. And then there's no like pulling me off my balance to, to do that. And there have been moments where the old Italian upbringing, family, respect, you have to, I would fall into something and then always regret it. Like always regret it and go, now I feel like I've been zapped. Like energetically, I've been zapped because it went against what I felt. So when you tell people what your boundaries are, then it's easier for you to actually set those boundaries for yourself. And it is hard to claim those boundaries. I know I find it tricky sometimes to say no to people because I want to make people happy. I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Right. But it's at the cost of my own peace, isn't it? It is. And it can be if you continue to allow that. So what I would say to people, like when I first started doing this and they would tell me when I would do media, you have to do this. So I was like, okay. And then I would not feel right about doing it. I would be like, oh, I don't, I don't think this person's going to be like truthful. If I was doing a radio show and they want me to read the host of the show, I'm like, what if the radio, what if he's not truthful? And then I had those experiences and I was like, well, now I look bad because I didn't listen. So you have those experiences with your friends or your family or your coworkers, or you put yourself in that position where the phone goes off and you see the person calling you and you have that feeling where you're like, oh, not now, like not right now. But you know that you can't hit decline so quickly because then they're going to know that you didn't take the call. And so you let it kind of just go to voicemail. That's a person you need to create a boundary with because you're already reacting to the energy of that going, no, they're going to suck my life force through the phone. 
Because when we first met, you taught me something, and I still use this lesson about negative ninjas. Correct. In terms of protecting myself. Can you share that with our listeners? So when you think about a ninja, right, if you just think about the emoji that you have on your phone of ninjas or how teenage mutant ninjas, how, how they show up, right, the concept of a ninja, they're adept at what they do, usually highly trained. And a negative ninja is the same way. So that could just be that person's thoughts, crossing that boundary, doing that thing where you get that, that, that internal reaction of like, mm, this isn't a good guy. This isn't a good person. This isn't good for me. Like, I don't want to do that. And you don't listen. So you have to go, no, I'm not going to allow any negative ninjas. Part of the boundary program. You're just not allowing that in. I love it. I use it. I've taught my daughters to use it. And it's a very, I think, effective way of dealing with those toxic people. And with your own toxic thoughts. So you have to remind yourself, no negative ninjas. Like when you start going down that path of, well, I'm not good enough, or I have imposter syndrome, or I'm not, a, I'm not pretty, or I'm, not, I'm too fat, or whatever those things are that that negative self-talk kicks in, that's where you have to recognize you can't be your own negative ninja. You have to work at, no, if I put that out there, I'm going to attract more of that, and then it becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy because I'm pulling that energy in. How did you get so wise? Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I think just years of doing this, years of watching humanity, years of listening to my spirit team, paying attention. I sometimes feel like I'm in a zoo like, and I'm watching life as I watch people. And I think, oh, they're not going to do that. Are they going to actually do that? Oh my God, they're doing that. Like, why would they do that? And I'm like, to me, it wasn't obvious. Why would you do that? For them, it wasn't. And then they went, wound up going through like really bad stuff. And, and I would objectively say like, just curious, like you saw the person, you saw the family they came from, you saw the behaviors that are connected to them. You saw all of the things that led up to you saying yes to go do that. Why would you do that? One woman said to me, well, I thought I could change him. So I was like, well, what was it inside of you that thinks you could be the person to change that when you've witnessed five other people before you who couldn't change that? I got her to see like, oh, this is a you thing. It's not a him thing. It's not his fault. He said, I am this person. And he was that person. And he was that person for you. You talk about your spirit team. Mm -hmm. What is that? So I believe that we all have energies that watch over us in our lives. And they don't necessarily have to be our loved ones and friends. It doesn't mean that your dad who's in spirit isn't watching over you. But they're not your teachers. So like when you go to school, you have people who are teachers and they teach you in school. When you're working in your field, you have producers and directors that help to do what you do. They're there behind the scenes to make you look good, be good, and help create for you. But you have to invite them in. You have to work with them. You have to pay attention. And you do that through meditation and prayer. And I tell people all the time, just refer to them as your team spirit. You know, that they're your team And hey, I need assistance with this. Can you help me with this? And so for you though, is that God? Is that a higher spirit? Is that a force of good? Yes, it's all the above to me. I feel like it's all of that same energy. I was born and raised Roman Catholic, raised that way. My kids were raised that way. I sent them to, you know, Catholic school. I feel like it was important to learn a language. And I think if my wife was, you know, if Judaism was her faith, 
and she was more into her faith than I was into mine, I would raise the kids Judaism. I think it's important to have a language. Interesting you use the word language to talk about faith or religion. It is a language. So I remember being on stage in Fresno, California, and somebody said, you've got connections. What's the best religion? And I started to laugh. And I was like, what? Connections. She's like, you talk to people. She was like- You've got the hotline, Yeah, she's like, I've been in temples. I've been in churches. She was like, I can't, I don't know where I belong. She's like, I really honestly, and she was so honest. She wasn't trying to be funny or sarcastic. She was more exhausted in how she asked it. And I went to give her my standard answer. And my standard answer is, I paint a portrait of energy and how you frame that portrait is how you were raised. That's my normal answer. But that's not what came out. <laughs> like what came out that day was, what's the best language? And she said, what do you mean? And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, what do you mean? Like, where are we going with this? And then the, that would follow up was like, what is the best language? And she said, well, I don't know if there's a best language. She goes, I would assume, depending upon where you are is the one you speak. I said, so is there a best? Like, is Mandarin better than Spanish? Is Spanish better than German? And she said, no. I go, some might be spoken more in mass because of the amount of people, but does it make it better? And she goes, no. I go, so language is how people communicate with each other. Religion is the language how people communicate with the divine. Is one better than the other? And she went, I guess not. I go, so I guess it's important just to understand a language or how we communicate with the divine. So for me, I've tried to put out to people, your faith is free. That is a foundation that you can create and build on. Religion, I think, is controlling. And I think what religion does is it tries to control people and you got to pay for it, right? So there's no guilt. I mean, I think about- Well, you pay for it in different ways, right? You pay for it in guilt. You pay for it, you don't, you know, repent. I was born and raised in a family that if you did not go to confession, you did not receive on Sunday. There was no active contrition walking down the aisle towards the priest. I was also the, you know, we were not a, you don't receive in your hand kind of a family. The priest had to put it like in your mouth. There's a lot of rules growing up. And I kind of look at all that and I was like, okay, that's the policy and procedure for that. It doesn't really serve me any longer, but I want my kids to have an understanding. So I made sure they had the same language that I had. And then that sparked conversations. And it's a very different world that we're living in because of like technology and social media, and access to information that my kids, a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old, have that I never had. So I was the person who asked questions that got me thrown out of religious instructions because I, I didn't understand why they were teaching me something that didn't make logical sense. So I would ask questions, a lot of questions. So is that then how you came to who you are today? You know, thinking about that little boy who was facing those rules within the Roman Catholic Church, that sense of having to do the right thing for your family. How did you go from that to where you are now? So my mom divorced my dad, and I remember her feeling excommunicated. And when she would go to Mass, she would basically stand in the back or sit in the back away from family. And I'm like, can you explain why? And she said, well, I'm not welcome here any longer. And I remember that feeling of going, you're not welcome here any longer. Like, God's not going to let you be like connected. Like, it just wasn't. And I was like, that sounds like a man-made rule to me. Like, that doesn't sound like, you know, I got, well, she's like, you know, I'm divorced and blah, 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 blah. So I was like, okay, well, if she's divorced, what I do, well, I'm like, I should be in the parking lot then. Because from an energy standpoint, 
you know, the Catholic Church or who you talk to within any type of, you know, religious kind of function would be not supportive of the work that I do. I remember one afternoon, my two o'clock client showed up and there was a nun that was standing there. And I thought she was there for like a collection. I was like, hi, can I help you? And she says, I'm looking for John. And I said, I am John. And she said, hello, John. I'm Sister Francesca. I'm your two o'clock appointment. And I was like, what? I was like, oh, c- c- come on in. I brought her upstairs. I sat her on the couch. I go, I'll be, I'll be right with you. <laughs> I went in the other room and I called my wife at work and I was like, uh, I have an issue. And she goes, what's the matter? And I go, my two o'clock appointment came. I said, and I'm concerned. And she goes, what's the matter? And I go, it's a nun. She's like, what do you mean it's a nun? I go, I mean, it is a full on nun. <laughs> like she's like sister she's acting. <laughs> like she's like sister act, like happening in my, in my office. And I said, and I'm like distracted. And Sandra's just like, me. she's like, is she topless? And I was like, no, she's not topless. <laughs> she's like, then go do your job. So I kind of mustered up the like, you know, suck it up mentality. And I went in, I sat down and I did the reading. And at the end, very calmly, she said, do you know why I'm here? I said, well, I'm assuming because you want to talk to your family. And she said, no, I was here to have you arrested. And I was like, what? What? Yeah. She goes, I was here to have you arrested. She goes, I run a grief group in Staten Island. And she goes, you have read for so many of my group members. She said, I wanted to make sure that you were not taking advantage of them. She goes, so I came here today to assess you and check you out. And she goes, and if this wasn't real and legitimate, she goes, I was having you arrested. And there was this like very awkward pause. And I'm like, how's the rest of my afternoon looking, you know? (laughs) (laughs) What's going to happen next? And then what did she say? She said, it is very clear that God gives people abilities and gifts. She goes, and you clearly are using yours to help people. And it's important that (laughs) it's very important that you know that you will continue to be using yours free of charge for my grief group when you come to the convent and do groups for me. And I did that for years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And what did that mean for you though personally having grown up in the Catholic Church, so to well, speak? That was and then how almost... my day started. The day started with her. The day ended with a gentleman. And I was telling everybody, every one of my clients, like I was late that day because I like I was like, oh my God, and the, the gnome was here, she's gonna be arrested. I was like disagreed. And then at the end of the night, this guy said to me, he goes, I think I should tell you something. I'm like, no, no, no. And now the truth be told, I was starving. I was so hungry. He was the last person I had to read. And the only thing I was trying to think about is what was I going to eat when I was done? Like, what was the food that I was going to like reward myself because I was like working all day? And I said, no, 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 you sit down. I have to like, no, no information. And then I go, I have your dad here. And very quickly, the gentleman said to me, I'm going to need to use your phone. I went right now. And he said, yes, right now. He said, because if you're talking to my dad, then my mother is devastated because we just had dinner tonight and I'm going to need to use your phone. And he looked at me this like really sarcastic kind of like, I'm like, well, then I have your father-in-law here because it's a father. I keep getting the word father. And he goes to me, he goes, I can assure you, I do not have a father-in-law. And then I didn't like his snarkiness. Like it just wasn't working for me because I was really hungry. So I just like leaned in. I went, look. And when I did that, everything got black. His like clothing went all black up into a collar. And I went, oh my God, you're a priest. And he goes, yes, I am. <gasps> and he goes, that's what I wanted to tell you. So then I read for him. And at the end of the day, he says, do you know why I'm here? And I looked at him. I was like, why? Same story. Same exact story. And then I just was like, dude, why like a nun and a priest on the same day? 
And he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, because you're lost. He goes, and God knows you're lost. So he sent us in as a lifeboat. I lost it because <laughs> I, was, I was lost. I did feel like, I felt like I didn't belong. So I kind of felt like he gave me my faith back. And we've been best friends ever since. That is extraordinary. Yep. And so how long ago was that, John? 1992. Yeah. I mean, that is phenomenal. And that idea, though, of you feeling lost. Completely lost. And when you say lost, how did that manifest itself or what did that look like? It made me feel, because of what my mom said, a negative ninja thought, we're not welcome here. You're not welcome here. If I'm in the back row, you're in the parking lot. <laughs> like, like, why would I want to be someplace if I'm not welcome? Like, I don't want to be here. So I felt like, what's my belief system? Like, well, I believe in God. I just have a problem with the people that are at the pulpit. You know, like I believe in the messages of humanity and community and all of the stuff that religion is supposed to do for like your faith, right? But I had a problem with like, you know, a, a priest in confession asking me really inappropriate questions when I was a child. I'm like, I literally remember sitting there in the box going, I don't think you should be asking me that. Like, I knew that. I didn't know I was psychic, but I knew that. So I always had this like questioning mentality. So because of that, it made me feel like an outcast. And the two of them brought me back. Now, am I like super Catholic? Not even a little bit. Do I have that as my faith and my language of prayer? Yes. Do I use the rosary as a repetition of prayer for like affirmations and energy? Absolutely. But part of the pun saved me, you know, like they really did in a way that was necessary. I didn't have to change me. They allowed me. To be you. Correct. And I said to him, I go, like, aren't you going to get in trouble for like knowing me? And he was like, of course. He's like, but we all have to like work within the rules, don't we? By the way, this priest packs every parish he ever got moved to. Like he would turn that parish like, because he had that energy. And he would say, like, I understand that you might have family members that are gay that feel like they are not welcome in this building. This is the building they're welcome in. And he would pack them in, absolutely pack them in. Every parish he would go to. Because to me, that, that is what faith and compassion is about. That's, that's a living example of he this is what it is. He was legitimately teaching the teachings, you know. And then he would make statements like, you know, I was talking to Jesus this morning. He goes, hold on. You would say you were talking to your guides, but in my language, I would say I was in meditation with Jesus. And he would qualify that in that kind of kind of way. And he did get in trouble with the diocese because he was interviewed in a paper. And even though we changed his name, um, it wound up getting out. And he was kind of lambasted for, and he stood by me. He saved my faith. When did you know you were psychic? I knew that I was psychic when I went to debunk a woman doing readings at my grandmother's house. And I wanted to be like, y'all know this ain't real, right? Like this woman's just like making this up. Like this is all like, and they were like, no, she's real. I'm like, okay. I tried to pull apart the readings of the people that had gone before, you know? She read like 17 people that day. So there was a lot of people for me to play with. And I was like, well, I'm having a hard time here. And I never had a hard time before. 
like other people, I'd be like, let me guess, you're going to Florida. And they'd be like, yeah, he told me I'm going to Florida. I'm like, of course you're going to Florida. You live in New York. Where do people go? They go to Florida and they go to Aruba. I'm like, that is like a non, like, you know, please. But I had a hard time doing it with her. And then my grandmother came down and my grandmother was emotional. And that really upset me. I'm like, what did she say to you? And she goes, she told me that Tony was with me. And Tony was my grandfather who'd been like gone from the early 60s. I never knew him. And I was like, grandma, you were introduced to her as Mrs. Esposito. You can't get more Italian than Mrs. Esposito. Like, is it really that big of a stretch that there's a Tony in your family? And she looked at me with a straight face and she said, if you don't believe that your grandfather, who loved me more than life itself, is still watching over me, that sounds like a you thing. And I was like, Grandma had a good sense of boundaries. <laughs> grandma was a, yes, she, grandma was early an on. Yes, Grandma was an Aquarian. She, she knew how to put a boundary. And I like looked at it, I was like, Grandma, she goes, well, how would, he, how would she know he was buried with a mandolin? And I was like, what? And she goes, your grandfather was buried with a mandolin. How would she know that? I was like, I don't know that. So after that moment, my grandmother walked away. I went to the list of people that went to go see her before, who, was a, who had been read. And I'm like, could any of these people have known that? And could that woman have extrapolated that from them? And none of them were family. I was like, how the hell would she know that? So then my cousin came down and she was like white as a ghost. And she was like, oh my God. I'm like, oh, come on, not you too. Because she was my partner in crime with making fun of the other ones. And she's like, no, John, this is, she's real. Like, she's, you got to go. And I said, like, I'm not paying her money to, to tell me a story. I'll buy a book. It'll be cheaper. She goes, I'll pay for you to go. And as soon as she said that, I looked at my mom, like, can I? And my mom looked at me and she goes, you can go, but you better treat her with respect. And she had that look of like, I will kick your ass. If like, you're like, that's how she came across. I was like, oh no, I will treat her with respect. I go, but I will not help her the rest, the rest of you people are. So I went in and I was just like, did not have any type of emotion. She took my high school ring and she performed what's called psychometry. Psychometry is where you hold a person's object and you read their energy. And there's two types of psychometry. Objective is where you read the energy of the object. Subjective is where you read the subject. She took my high school ring and she just went like this. She put it to her forehead. And out her forehead, she just started rattling off like ludicrous information. Like you have highly evolved beings of white and gold light and they're ready to work with you. And I'm here today to put you on your path. Now she's not even looking at me. So I'm not having this moment of like, oh, this woman's crazy. Like she's legitimately crazy. So I was like, hmm, okay. And then she started giving me information. Kind of felt like it was accurate. But then I went, no, this can apply to other guys that are in my grade. I'm like, I could apply this to three or four people. So I'm like, mm, strike two. And then she nailed me at the last part of it. She got information that was not stuff that she should have known. I would have had to have told her. She would have had to have been with me. And there's no way possible that she could have known that. And my biggest concern at 15 was this woman knew my mother. And if this woman left this reading and went back and told my mother... I was like, oh, I'm going to be in big-ass trouble. Like, this is going to be bad. So I lied to her. I lied. I went, oh, I don't know what that is. And she went like this. She went, okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about it anyway. And she gave me the outcome of the circumstance. And it all happened. So this was before it had happened. This is before it happened. She gave me the information about what was going to happen with these people. And just when I tell you, there's no way this woman could have known. 
Like nobody knew in that house. Nobody could have told her. She was from New Jersey. I lived in Long Island. Like there's just no way. And then it happened, you know, like the stuff that she said happened. And I didn't like it. I did not go, oh my God, that's amazing. She predicted that and it happened. Oh my God, I have like white and gold people that want to work with it. None of that kicked in. What kicked in was I felt like I had like a burglary, like my house was violated and somebody went for my house. I didn't like it. I felt violated. I wanted to learn how did this woman do that? And how do I make sure nobody can ever, ever, ever do that again? Because my family was always having like people over. And I was like, well, what if, what if I don't have to be in the room for that to happen? Like, what if my mom could sit with somebody and they could like tell her something about, how do I like create a boundary program? So maybe from the early days, you know, that seed was planted. And then as I studied every book that was in the public library under the occult section in 1985, I remember sitting there going, this isn't psychic. Why are they calling this psychic? This is common sense. I had to reevaluate my entire first 15 years of consciousness, like really, really go, wait, that was a psychic thing? And I had a lot of them. And then I started to actively study tarot, numerology, psychometry. I tried with astrology, but I was really bad at it. It was, I had a really tough, and the reason is, and I don't think I was supposed to be an astrologer because the universe gave me a teacher in, in high school that had Alzheimer's and he did not teach. He literally read the paper for the entire class. And it was his last year. They didn't want to fire him. He had tenure. They wanted him to be able to retire with full pension. And I was the kid that couldn't do it. I, I couldn't teach myself geometry. I, the extra help didn't work for me. So I had a really bad blockage with geometry. I remember being in gym class going like, how do you guys prove theorems? Like, why do you know this? Like, why can't I do this? Like, I didn't get the angles. And then when it came time, I want to say around 1986, I was already doing readings for about a year. 1987, between that time, um, a colleague of mine said, I looked at your astrological chart. She's like, dude, like you are very, 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 you know, your abilities are profound. You're going to be a great astrologer. Let me teach you. And I took one class with her and she used the word sacred geometry. Block. So I think I was supposed to not learn it. So I know enough of it that I could understand it, but I can't do charts or cast charts or... And... This sort of realization over time and then the study and things that you did, were you frightened at times and thinking, I actually don't want to go down this path? No, by that point, it was more like an adrenaline rush of like inquisitiveness. Like I just, I kind of felt insatiable with information. Like I want to just know more and more and more and more. And then I was like, how can I, how can I push the envelope? And I started to notice things. Things that I would go, oh, that's a coincidence. So I had been working at a deli and somebody would ask me for a specific amount of cold cuts. And I would slice the cold cuts and then before I put them on the scale, I would see the number. And it was always the number. And I'm like, okay, well, it must be because of the, the amount of slices. I psychologically understand the amount of slices and that's why it's the number. So then... They would ask me for a different amount of cold cuts and I was able to do it, whether it was potato salad, macaroni salad. I was like, okay, so I could see the numbers on the scale. That's kind of weird. So then I asked, well, the other people go, do you guys, can you judge the numbers? And they'd be like, no, we could judge the feeling of it, but we can't judge the numbers. Like, why? I'm, I'm just curious. Then I moved into a video store and when I was working at the video store and for all the young listeners, I just want you to understand the video store would be like Netflix in a building. 
right? So I was like working in the video store and people would walk up to the counter and I would attack read them. I know, I was young. So they'd walk towards you and you'd be already was, knowing things. Yeah, really, <gasps> really bad, really bad, really, really bad. I blame that on my youth, my immaturity and total ego. It was more like self-discovery and look what I can do. And if there was a hot girl in the room, I wanted to be like, can I get her number type of vibe? Like, so that's what I would use my ability for. So Not- how would that work then in terms of, because that's what I'm fascinated by with when people either come up to you or walk past you. What is it that you see or feel or? Now nothing. Now I'm shut down because it's, you know, you learn as you are younger, as you evolve, what's right or wrong, what you should or shouldn't do, what's not allowed. I had a, a mentor that said to me, would you ever watch your neighbor shower? I know, weird statement coming no. from a weird statement coming from a psychic, right? She goes, just because you could doesn't mean you should. Never do it psychically. So when she couched it that way, she kind of put it in perspective like, oh my God, I have the ability to voyeuristically look into someone's life. And that's wrong. I never, ever did it again after that. Like, it was like, no, that you don't do that. So I tell people that watch anything on social media and reality shows where this work is portrayed and you see somebody, they're just so moved. They have to move across the street to the restaurant, to the wherever to give the message. It's not appropriate. You never enter someone's vibration without consent. So for me, I'm always powered down. How though did it manifest itself before you realized, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to exploit that boundary. What is it that you would see or feel or what what would it be? So between 1985 and 1987, I would have called myself a tarot reader. I was like a psychic tarot reader. I love, I still to this day, I love cards. I travel with, they were always with me. It's like my first love. Like, you know, if you're an artist and your first, you know, what you do as a, you know, if you're a painter, painting might be your first thing. So tarot was the thing that opened up my client's energy for me. And I was able to look at the cards and then the cards would talk to me. And what was funny before that, I used to play classical piano. So I studied piano from the age of five until about 16. And I remember around 12, the teacher saying to my mom, I think he's going to be like, this is, his, this is his thing. And my mom was like, really? She's like, I've heard him play. I'm not really sure it's his thing. And she says, why are you saying that? I had told the teacher that the pianos talked to me. The keys used to talk to me. And they did. Like I would get feelings from the keys. So that was like, you know, the teacher, the piano teacher was like, he's going to be a prodigy. He's, I'm, that's my student type of thing. Then when I started developing and I was working with the cards, all of a sudden the piano became just a piano. It stopped talking. But the cards were now doing the same thing that the piano did. And I never put this together, but Paul Shavelson, who was the executive producer of Crossing Over, he and I was stuck in, a, in traffic for like three hours leaving the studio one day. And um, he goes, so... You, they used music to fine-tune you and your vibration. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, they used music. He goes, they used another instrument to fine-tune your instrument. And then the piano stopped talking, but the cards did. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I never looked at it that way, but I did. And then in 1987, my uncle died. And when my uncle passed, it kind of was my first real confrontation with the concept of death. And again, feeling like I was in an anthropological experience, watching what it did to people, how it ripped apart family apart, how young he was, like all of it was like this, like, whoa. And it happened around his death. So 
I jokingly say it's like he got there and plugged me in or his death plugged me in to the concept. And then I noticed that I would start getting information in my readings, names, I always got names, but they were like dead people names. And I'd be like, um, I guess these are people who are really important to you and that's why I'm picking up on them. And a colleague who's now passed was sitting next to me at a psychic fair and she looked at me and she went, you do realize what's happening, right? And I went, I'm getting the names of their family members as validation. And she says, no, you're getting them because they're giving them to you. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, they're talking to you. Go with that. And that's how it happened. Then I would, in the beginning of my sessions, only let the people come through then. Then I would get into the everyday stuff. And when then you say they're talking to you, is it language or is it? It's like an energetic language. So if you close your eyes now, right? If you close your eyes and I say, I want you to visualize a beach. Now you're seeing a beach. In your mind, you're picturing a beach. Now I say, I want you to imagine that there's two older gentlemen walking towards you on the beach and you can't quite make them out yet, but they're walking towards you. And as they get closer and closer and closer, you start to recognize that those energies are people who are in spirit that you love. And you're able to see them on the beach. You see how you see that? Mm. That's how I see it in my head. Except they might not be on the beach. I gave you the beach to ground it for you. And then energetically, I didn't tell you who the two men were. Your family told you who the two men were. You put those people there. And sometimes it's not who you would want to put there. And you could do this exercise on a bench. You could do this exercise in a gazebo. But I see it in my mind's eye. And then I hear, but I'm not hearing out loud in my ear. It's actually coming through your throat. It's called clairaudience. And it's happening through your throat chakra. We have seven energy centers in your body and the throat chakra is the one that's clairaudience. And it's hearing a thought. So it's not like somebody goes, hey, John. It's more like this thought just gets downloaded to you. And you have to distinguish the difference between what you're thinking and what you're receiving. But if you're in the receiving mode, you just go with whatever it is that you're getting. So I see, hear, and feel energy. So I take that three-part process and then I interpret it. And I always go back to this one producer from a show called The Charles Grodin Show. Um, and this kid, Brandon, was the producer. And he goes, dude, why has it got to be like charades? Why has it got to be cryptic? Why has it got to be like it's an older male figure with this and he had blackness in the chest? He goes, why can't he just say, I'm John and I had lung cancer, that's my son. I go, well, how do deaf people communicate? And he went, what? I go, how do hearing impaired, the deaf community, how do they communicate? He goes, Sign language. I went, why don't they just talk? And he looked at me like, how could you say that? That's like, so like, you know, we're going like way back before politically correct was politically correct. So I was very highly not being politically correct when I said that. Um, And I used it as a point because I wanted to drive it home for him. I said, he goes, because they're deaf. And I went, right. I go, but they're living and they have an instrument and they still can't communicate. They use symbolic forms of communication to let you know what they want to get across. I go, now we have somebody who's not in the physical body, no instrument, and they have to energetically communicate. So it is a energetic sign language, which will change medium to medium, person to person because of their frame of reference and how they're built. What about, I was talking with a girlfriend on the weekend about this and, and both of her parents have passed and she's Jewish. Her parents were the most generous, warm in your face, amazing people. She struggles with where they are. Right. And because she says, I know how much they love me. If they could talk to me, I know that they would be 
screaming it from heaven or doing whatever it was to show me a sign that they're here. How do you explain that? So I, I actually explain it using a faucet. So I was doing an interview once when Crossing Over was on the air and the, the journalist basically came from a more cynical kind of perspective, not where she's coming from. He goes, well, I think it should be like this. You know, if you could legitimately do this, it should be like this. And I was like, okay. And I walked over to the sink and I turned the faucet on. I go, I think the water should flow upwards. And he goes, what? I go, why isn't the water flowing upwards? Why is it going down the drain? I go, why isn't it happening the way I want it to happen? I don't want it to go that way. I want it to go some other way. I go, that's how I hear what you're saying. You're trying to put an earthly dictated control on something that's energetic and out of our control. That's like saying, I'm thirsty. Let me go to Niagara Falls for a cup of water. Like, it's not logical for me doing this. So I think when you add your friend's concept in, she's doing the same thing in a different capacity because she's looking at the love bond. And what I always want people to recognize, one is that nobody ever needs a psychic. Nobody needs a medium. Nobody needs a reading. Nobody ever needs that. They want it. What they need is an understanding. So whenever I do a Zoom group or if I'm doing this or if I'm doing a, you know, an in-person event, what I'm doing is that's a classroom for me. And the readings that happen are the textbooks, the teachings, tools that are being used for that specific crowd. And I could do five events in the same city. I'll have five very different classes that I'm teaching because of who's in attendance. And sometimes we miss what I think is obvious. We're so busy looking for what we want that we're missing what is. So I recommend a book called Hello from Heaven. And it's probably about 30 years old now. There's not a psychic in the book. It's written by Bill and Judy Guggenheim. And they studied, I want to say like 7,000 case studies of people who had what they nicknamed, coined the phrase, ADCs, after-death communications. So these ADCs, they categorized and they put them in a book. And when people read this book, they have that experience that I had sitting on the floor of the public library going, this is not a sign. I've had this, but I think we want it to be so big. We don't want them there. We want them here. We don't want to have to use a medium. We want them directly here. So I think once we come from a perspective of understanding how energy can operate, then we can fine tune how we allow it to take place. Plus be 50% of the equation. Why do they have to work so hard? Why why don't we build half that bridge? And how do we do that? Because Nick, my wonderful producer, and I were chatting about this too. How can we then communicate apart I mean prayer to me right. is an obvious way but to actually feel as if they know that we are talking to them so I think people do it in different ways people do it at the cemetery people do it to photos people do it at the beach but I like to give people a tactical tangible thing I like people to write letters I like them to literally write a letter to their person in spirit I like them to say whatever it is that you're feeling so if somebody just went through a loss the amount of things that need to be said right now are enormous. That's a lot of letters. So every time you would have that moment, and I use myself as an example, the video store parking lot that I worked at, my mom had died during that period of time. My aunt worked at the deli next door, my mom's baby sister. My mom bequeathed her car to my aunt. So a lot of people have had this moment. I'm not alone in it, but I was kind of like in the middle of my afternoon, the store was kind of really quiet. And I walked towards the, um, to the, parking lot and I saw my mom's car and it wasn't my aunt's car it was my mom's car and in that moment I was like oh my mom and 
The logic would prevail if my mom was physically here, she would be in the parking lot. But I called her office. In that moment, I picked up the phone and I called her office. And I was like, hi, can I talk to Prin? And it was the way the woman answered the phone. She recognized my voice. And she went, John? And it was like reality came crashing down. And I hung up the phone really quickly. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my, oh my God. I would now say to that version of myself, write a letter to your mom about what just happened. I went to the end of the counter. I saw your car in the parking lot. I logically didn't. Everything I just said to you, I would write it to her. And I think we build that bridge by communication. And then I've had people do this exercise. And the amazing thing is when they come through in readings and they say, I've read your letters or I know what you said. Uh, it's just really powerful. That is such a beautiful way, I think, for people to feel that they can remain connected with those they love. Because we don't do death well in terms of talking about it Nobody enough. We're fearful no. of it. But those sorts of tools, I think, that you give us is a way of still feeling connected and how we can manage that terrible grief. I'm going to give you another negative ninja thing that you can use. And one of the things that I had always said to my son when he was a little boy, and I did it with my daughter as well, I'd be like, hey, in case I get abducted by aliens, and I would pause, and then I would deliver a thought, a lesson, a profound conversation would, would happen, a teaching moment, you know? So that went on for like, since he was like two or three years old. I want to say he was about 12, 12 and a half. And we were taking a walk. He goes, Daddy, can I ask you a question? I go, sure. He goes, I get the whole psychic thing. He goes, I get that. Like, I understand that. He goes, well, what age were you when you became really obsessed with aliens? And I kind of like didn't catch on. I went, Justin, I'm not, I'm not obsessed with aliens. And then for a brief second, I was like, wait, is he connected with my dad? Because my dad had a thing for aliens. So I was like, oh my God, am I going to get a message from my dead father from my son? I'm like, I'm like, why are you saying that? And he goes, well, you always say in case I get abducted by aliens. So I started to laugh and I go, just, I go, I, I think you're old enough to get where I, what I meant by that. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, I mean, like if I was existing on this level and then I raised my hand like a foot, I go, and now I'm existing on a different dimension. I'd still want you to know. And he got really serious and he goes, you mean like in case you died? And I went, yeah, buddy, that's what I, yeah. He goes, well, that's not funny. I go, it wasn't meant to be funny. I go, those were conversation starters. And he goes, oh. You know, Justin, how many conversations did we have? How many deep conversations, profound conversations did we have? He goes, a lot. I go, if I would have said to you, hey, in case I die, I want you to know this, would you remember the second part? He goes, absolutely not. I go, and it would be coming from a place of morbidity, you know? And he goes, right. I go, so one day when you're dad, you're going to use that phrase with your kids. I go, because it's a conversation starter. So for anybody that's listening, if you have a family dynamic where it's not comfortable to be ooey and gooey and I love you and huggy and kissy because you weren't raised that way, but you feel it and you know that they feel it. Somebody's got to take the, you know, the energy and kind of be first. So just say, hey, in case I get about to be aliens, they'll be disarmed by the statement and then they'll laugh. And then you could say what you need to say. Oh, you are so full of the most amazing lessons. Oh, thank you. No, you are. And I'm still, you know what's so beautiful? I still feel when you'd ask me to close my eyes and think about being on a beach and that I feel very peaceful. And that, that I think is a very powerful sort of tool as well for people to do. Obviously not if they're driving while they're listening to Correct. us. But <laughs> Correct. If you're but driving, 
no, no. But that's a re- that's beautiful. It's funny. I say I believe, but I struggle with faith. I struggle with thinking there's a God. I don't believe in a God. I believe in a goddess. But even okay. more so, I think about I believe in a, a force of good, a higher power that is a good force. That okay. is my. I like that. I suppose my language. But then there are other parts that I struggle with. Well, where do we go when we die? I haven't been able to wrap my head around that. I think it's because I'm afraid of not existing anymore, of of thinking I'm not going to be me if I'm not here. So it's you'll be an aspect of you. Okay. A facet of you. Your consciousness is like a diamond with multiple facets. But where will I be? So think about where the internet is. Where is that? In the cloud. Right. <laughs> I don't know. So, but think about how you just said that. <laughs> yeah. and, and how do people depict heaven? They always go to a cloudy kind of a vibe, right? So the internet is a dimension. You can't go there with a physical body, but you can access it. You can connect with it. You can talk through it. You can communicate with and through it, like around it. That's what to me the afterlife is like. The, the other side, the spirit world, whatever you want to call it. It's just a dimension. And it's a dimension where we as a frequency evaporate out of our body. And that's an example for anybody that's struggling with death for a child and you're trying to figure out. Because kids today are not like kids like they used to be. And I'm not just saying that because like it's really factual because they didn't have technology like that. They want to know, can we Google something? Can we get there? So for somebody who's dealing with a child who needs to conceptualize that, I say, take them into the kitchen. You put a, a pot on the stove and you say, this pot represents your body and call it God, the divine goddess, whatever you want, puts your soul into that body and the water represents your soul. So now we have a vessel with substance, soul and physical are now being depicted in, a, in an example way. Then you turn on the stove and you say, and that's the sun. Because without the sun, life on this planet is not existent. So we're just now bringing basic science in. And then over a period of time, what's gonna happen with that water? It'll evaporate, it'll disappear. It's going to evaporate. It's going to change form. But it doesn't change its chemicals. It's still H2O. It's just in a different form. So it evaporates out of the physical body. And where does it go? It goes into the air. And where is the air? All around you. So now this kid who's just lost their sibling or their parent or their grandparent has a concept. Heaven's not that far off place that they're being taught that nobody's paying attention to. Heaven's this place in a dimension, that, a dimension that exists that's all around them. And they too can still have access. It's a way of kids being able to navigate their grief. And it's a way for all of us to navigate. I mean, for me, thank you for sharing that. Because I find that incredibly beautiful and moving. Because it's a way I can now think about it. Right. Where I'd very much thought, oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't imagine people are sitting up in a cloud looking down at me. Right. But I love that idea of it's this energy of people still around me. And hopefully it's a beautiful pink sparkly energy. <laughs> <laughs> John, it has been such a privilege to have you here in the studio. Thank you for having me. To talk with you again and you really are a special soul oh, and thank you. you bring so much comfort 
and certainty, I think, in an uncertain world. And I, like, and I thank I, you for that. I like people to question, and I, and I appreciate you having me. So in case I get abducted by aliens, just know <laughs> I love you. Well, I'm never going to look at a, a pot on the stove the same way again. And I'm also, whenever I see something sparkly or like a diamond, that's what I'm going to think about the afterlife. So thank you for that lesson. Thank you. So what about that? I'm surrounded by pink sparkly energy. And as I said, I'm never going to look at a diamond or think about facets in the same way again. Now, John is going to be returning to Australia in October for a tour right around the country. You can see him connect with the other side and just learn from him. Hear those remarkable life lessons that he has There's going to be question and answer sessions and messages from loved ones on the other side and more. Now, for tickets, head to johnedward.net. And of course, we're going to have this in our show notes if you want more information. And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will never miss an episode. And if there's someone in your life who you think will love this conversation, share it with them. I know I want to share this with all of my loved ones. And I reckon if you enjoyed this chat with John, you're going to really like my chat with Indira Naidu. I think we're here to learn. And some of those lessons are difficult lessons, uh, but they're all part of that bigger picture. And ultimately... We want to find what our purpose is, you know? Why are we here? And in loss, it's not just acceptance. For me, it was really important to find meaning. And I think that part of what I've found in that meaning is finding a greater sense of purpose and why I'm here. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. 